0: Now approaching junction at platform passengers Airport, Please stay on board. Next stop road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation. We thought we'd bring our prices down.
2: Truckers do not get the good end of the stick. They do not get listened to. It is really hard for their voices to be heard. And in this case, you know, there's a lot of like, yeah, you guys go convert, the market will figure it out. And these truckers are saying, well, where's all the infrastructure? And there isn't. And so I do have a lot of sympathy for the trucker.
1: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech this week. I'm going to start you off with a pop quiz. Do you know what drayage is? The word is drayage. I'm guessing most of you, apart from those card-carrying transport nerds, have no idea. Uh, So drayage and as you'll soon see, I even got the pronunciation wrong when I started talking about it on the pod. Dreyage is transporting cargo from a port on the water, an ocean port, to the various depots. Basically, it's the big diesel-guzzling lorries who take the giant containers from the ships to the Walmart or the Tesco or the John Lewis or the Amazon or wherever. And Dreyage is a disaster. It's a huge source of pollution it's a total calamity for the communities um, that are located next to these ports and they are typically poor communities because they are inhaling noxious exhaust fumes all day. And Drayage is also a big employer, especially of uh, independent truckers. So there's a lot of kind of factors at play here. And what's interesting and probably something you didn't know is that Drayage is about to get a huge makeover. So in California... There's been a law passed that by 2035, drayage has to go zero carbon, which basically means it needs to go all electric. Um, And this is a big deal because as we have seen with countless other industries where California goes, others follow. So this week's guest is right in the middle of this shift and his name is Matt LaDuke. He is the founder and CEO of Forum Mobility. They've just raised $415 million in a financing round to start building these massive charging depots that we're gonna need for this new generation of electrified trucks and lorries. Now, this is gonna be a massive undertaking as you will soon hear, not least because the batteries that these trucks need to generate the power for towing, they're just gargantuan. And to charge them, that alone is gonna require a massive revamp of the electricity grid and the generation base. And it needs to start happening now, very, very soon, given how long these infrastructure changes require to actually happen. So Matt is very eloquent about why dredge, despite, I admit, sounding super boring, is actually really right in the middle of a hornet's nest of issues that get stirred up when we start talking about doing the really hard work of greening big, heavy, polluting industries. And what does it mean for the independent truckers? What does it mean for local communities who've been suffering all these ill health issues for decades? What does it mean for the electricity grid? These are all huge questions, and we cover all of that and much more with Matt. And I think what you'll come away with from the conversation is just a greater appreciation of the challenge that lies ahead. And when we talk about this whole net zero, you know, kind of theory, this is the practice. And just this one niche area of transport and how it applies to this much broader movement toward, you know, decarbonization, just how complicated and exciting and difficult this is all going to be. So I think you'll get a lot out of this. Um, So I'm going to stop talking and hand you over to Matt LaDuke of Forum mobility. Enjoy. So I was on your website, and there's pictures of trucks. And then there's a word, dreage. I think I'm saying that right, which makes me think of dressage, which is, (laughs) you know, the event with horse dancing. But you don't do dressage. But I don't imagine most people know what Dreyage is so maybe we should start there
2: yeah drayage is definitely not dressage
1: oh is it drayage oh it sounds so much better when i said Dreage.
2: <laughs> yeah it's like fragile, uh, but uh no it's it's just drayage um and drayage is like this little tiny part of our supply chain that i had not heard of two years ago before we started this company not a lot of people hear about but it's it's huge yeah we're talking. In California, a billion miles a year are driven in drainage trucks. Drainage is really uh, simply, if you look out at the port of Oakland, if you've ever been to the San Pedro ports, if you're on the East Coast, and you look out of Newark, you see those container ships out there. Yeah, Those container ships come to port. The crane takes the container off of the ship, and they put it on the back of a truck. And that truck goes in, to your distribution center, whether it's the Amazon, the Walmart, the Target, the RAI, all that. And that is the drainage. That is moving things out of a port, to the next spot. And it's immense. I mean, it's, you know, a couple hundred million gallons of diesel are gobbled up in the trucks every year. And it's why there's been a lot of focus on cleaning it up. But that's strange in a nutshell.
1: That leads perfectly to the next question is, is like you, you mentioned there's a lot of uh, focus on cleaning it up. Again, I think it's not something that a lot of people think about when they think about supply chains, but what is happening in that world? Because a billion miles, hundreds of millions of gallons of diesel sounds a lot. But in terms of like, I don't know, the CO2 footprint, I don't know if there's numbers around that. And also what is happening in terms of the efforts, certainly in California, the U.S., and I don't even know if that's happening in the U.K., Europe and beyond.
2: Trade is 3.7 billion pounds of carbon, again, just in the state of California, um, and when you get down to like, you could talk about like the, the percentage, I mean, at the end, there's, there's single digit percentage of truck, you know, of, of miles driven are, are from class A trucks, but over well over 20% of the emissions come from class A trucks. Why drainage really, really matters is that just think about a port, trucks get choked through these communities that are adjacent to these ports. And, and, and what is being done is that if you live in West Oakland, if you live in Wilmington, California, these are the places where you have double the risk of having cancer double the risk Mm. of having asthma. It's what happens when you have, in the case of Oakland, seven, 8,000 trucks a day driving by your house. Or in the case of Wilmington, 20 to 25,000 trucks a day and into the Southern California port complexes. Those are the numbers that give us a lot of meaning to our mission at Forum in terms of how do we do this? Like, how, How do we take these combustion trucks off and put electric trucks on? That's also why the governor in California put an executive order out that by 2035 all drainage needs to be zero emission. And there's a bunch of steps, a yearly step in between that mandates thousands of trucks convert to zero emission every single year, but it's really that local. I mean, like carbon is a worldly problem, yeah, but it's really these port adjacent communities, which is why there's this focus in the environmental justice that they deserve in terms of the air quality um, mm. in those communities.
1: Well, yeah, that's what what struck me when you're talking is it's obviously everybody's trying to abate CO2 in every which way. But it sounds like especially this is a very real acute local component, basically for anybody living next or kind of close to a port anywhere in the world, I would imagine.
2: Every port has this like it has where all the ships come on and it has there is the warehouses on the other end. In our neighborhood, it's it's Livermore. It's Tracy. It's Manteca. In Southern California, it's, it's Rialto Yeah, to every port. There is a distribution center. And if you live along that corridor, you are bearing some brunt of many, many, many thousands of trucks going by in our case, it's, it's the 880, 238, 580 corridor here in the barrier. But it's, it's, you think about that, those trucks are all moving 50 to 60 miles, which is, by the way, it's also why Drage is such a great thing to electrify is it. These are trucks that go relatively short distances back and forth, spend a lot of time in traffic, and they spend a lot of time idling. It sets up really, really well to transition them from, from a combustion engine to an electric vehicle, whereas like an over-the-road truck that drives four or 500 miles a day from Fresno to Oregon, it's a little bit harder.
1: Can you just briefly describe what exactly Form is trying to do? You mentioned kind of electrifying. I mean, what what does that actually look like? When did you start the company? Kind of where are you in that whole process?
2: Yeah, I'll kind of take it back a little bit. I've, I started as a installer in renewables 20 years ago. What were you installing? I was installing solar panels on the Moscone Center in San Francisco. It was the very first time I, okay. uh, I was installing the old Arco panels and Sanyo HIT 190s for the old school solar. Like those are the very first panels. And eventually, construction management, project management ended up running distributed energy for a company called Nextera for a long time.
1: And Nextera, for those who don't know, hey, that's, I mean, they're one of the biggest, if not the biggest, solar
2: installer. Is that right? Yeah, it's the largest owner of wind and solar in the world. It's an incredible company. And it, it we, my group, the distributed energy group, we were the largest owner of distributed assets in the world. We ended up with $2 billion of distributed assets in the Hold Co. that we started. It's also where I saw the electrification, we were always asked, what are we going to do next? What are we going to do next? And every single year it came to electrification for me. And when I think about those very first days of installing solar panels, and the disparate nature of the market, then with solar, it's really, really akin to what happens today in the electrification market, you have OEMs creating being developers, you have developers being EPCs, you have OEMs being developers and EPCs, you have incentives from all these different pots all over the place. It's a lot like solar was in 2003, 4, 5. Well,
1: I was going to say, so if we could go back to that time, yeah, like 20 years ago, my immediate question is why would anybody install solar, right? Because I imagine it was far less
2: efficient and way more expensive than it is now. When you look at What has happened historically in places like California, especially, but West Coast, blue states, if you will, is the states have created programs to marry that capital cost with an incentive. And that's what's happening in Dreads today. That's what was happening back in the day. Mm. The rebate that you got from the California Energy Commission in 2005, the amount on a per watt basis is five or six X what it would actually cost to install the entire system today. Wow. So the rebates were disproportionately larger, right? And then eventually they just went away,
1: right? Because it was nascent back then. There was no economies of scale. It hadn't been
2: industrialized in China and other places, et cetera. Exactly. So you had California, these really big incentives. You had New Jersey. You had Massachusetts. You had these like these states that were really leading, putting their their money out there to lead, and that incentive money created an ability to deliver a system at an economic value similar to today, and now California did all that work, and you know all these other states did all this work, and then now you have the largest solar states in the world are places like Texas and Oklahoma, which have no incentives, but they're really, really well suited. So it worked. It worked. I mean, the money, the money came in. It, it took all the risk out. It created the supply chain. And now we have an industry that is pretty self-sufficient for for large part.
1: Right. It was kind of like, if you throw money at it, they will come. Or if you fund it, they will come kind of thing. Yeah. Which is very similar to what's happening in electrification now. Exactly. So what is happening now? Because when I think, obviously, we're out here in California, electric cars, you're starting to see them all over the place in a way that's noticeable even from two years ago uh, or three years ago. So it feels like electric cars are starting to really take off. I have yet to see a single truck that is very obviously electric, it might be, but it just feels like that's much earlier on. And also, it feels like the power required to tow a heavy thing is an entirely different prospect than just, you know, your passenger vehicle. Is that right? Yeah, you are
2: right. I mean, there are not that many, I think there was 45 at the beginning of 2022
1: on the road. Oh, dude, so you're like really early you're like
2: real early. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's going to be hundreds this year. We've got five. We've got three different OEMs. We've got the fifth truck here in a couple months, but we got four running in and out of the port of Long Beach and Los Angeles now. And there's more showing up every day. Um, there's going to have to be under the, the air resource board mandates. There's going to have to be thousands of these on the road even starting next year. And so it's a totally different thing. You're right though. I mean, like, your car battery, if you're in a Tesla, I mean, you're talking eighty-ish kilowatt hours. The Nikola truck has seven hundred and fifty kilowatt hours, and the Volvo trucks have five hundred and sixty kilowatt hours. So it is, it is a much much different thing. But the good news is, it's actually the same thing. It's like from a chemistry standpoint, right? These are pretty tried and true. I mean, you have CATL type you know batteries, which have been put into billions and billions of dollars of energy storage projects, like it's it's a readily available financeable chemistry, even though it's kind of like bleeding edge tech in some yeah. ways, it's also really, really well established. Like we don't have technology risk like a lot of new ventures do. We're not inventing a new fuel cell or something like that with new chemistries. Like we're kind of just putting together things that have been in place for a long, even the DC fast chargers that are being put in, like the same technology in those is what's been in the solar inverter market for decades right as new as it is it's made up of a, a bunch of parts that are really well established
1: so who's building the actual electric trucks because obviously nicola famously had this you know their c is i don't know if their ceos in jail now he might, i think he actually is in jail the sentencing is coming up yeah, he's about to be in prison for found guilty of all kinds of crazy fraud and faking videos and all kinds of things. Um, but I don't know if the, like what is left from that company uh, it still exists, obviously, if they're making them or if like Volvo or some of these big guys are actually have already seen the light and are gearing up. They have
2: and all the name brands that you never met. I, I drove a Peterbilt a few weeks ago. We have a Kenworth mm. in our fleet. We have a Volvo coming in our fleet. We have several other Volvos charging in our fleet. You have BYD. Um, we have several of those in our fleet, which is a large OEM in its own right. They're all coming and they all have to come. Not only do I think that those those companies are all well run. There's something here that's going to be a big market. We're, we're betting on Drayage as being like the biggest chunk for the, the battery electric heavy duty truck market, but there's gonna be something there. It's gonna be big and they're also required to deliver zero emission trucks. They're compliance issues um, that they have to overcome as well. So they have to be, if you're selling combustion trucks in California under some of the ARV regulations, you've also gotta be selling for every hundred over here, you gotta be selling five over here on the zero emission side, so.
1: I see. It's like somebody, like in a real estate developer, if you wanna build, you know, your normal condos X amount have to be affordable housing. Exactly, it's the Mm -hmm. compliance carve out. Right, 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 right. So how, what is your guys' model? How, how are you attacking this? Our view has been,
2: since we started the company, that the centralized depot for heavy duty was the only way that this is ever going to happen equitably on that scale. And when I say the central depot, I'm talking 50 to 200 trucks at a given facility, all charging. Right. So really big, really industrial size depots where Danny's trucking can show up or JB Hunt can show up and charge trucks got you and that doing this at a centralized facility is going to allow us economies of scale operational efficiencies and to deliver the best possible cost per mile there's also the fact is you know it's just really hard to do things on your own property with this type of yeah. amount of power that you need so what we're doing about we're building really big depots and we're offering a place to charge heavy duty trucks overnight very quickly during the day. Where we're also a little bit different is that we're also offering those trucks. And so what we do for our customers is we'll, if Danny's trucking showed up and you're running freight from the Port of Oakland out to the Central Valley, we'll put you in a Volvo truck or a Peterbilt truck or or whatever OEM we we all decide on. And we'll deliver that truck to you fully charged in a secure lot with maintenance at a fixed price per month. We'll take all the incentives, all the electrons on all the construction all the headache, and, and you just simply go back to operating a truck. And if customers, by all means, want to bring their own truck to our facility, that's even better. We enjoy that too.
1: And how would that running cost compare to what a, a diesel truck costs today? And I want, want to get into it like, because most truckers are independent operators or they might have one or two trucks or you know they're small kind of independent uh, businesses, basically. What does that cost look like?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a tough question because like you know, some people have a $40,000 truck that is running like a top, and some folks have a $150,000 truck with a note that just got a new transmission. And so what is the cost per month of a truck? It, you know, what we found in the hundreds and hundreds of different carriers that we've spoken to is that everybody's got a different answer. I will say that the ARB put out a total cost of ownership study that showed Class 8 electric tractors at about 10 to 20% below total cost of ownership basis, The trucks that we've put into place in Long Beach, I would say are beating that for this particular operator. He has confirmed that we're beating avoided cost of his diesel fleet, the way he had his diesel fleet, that we are beating the avoided cost of that by by good double digit margins. Right. You have yeah. to do that, right? And I told the, you know, we've, we've, we've talked to regulators and, and and folks who are in charge of the incentive program, but we cannot tell small businesses to switch from a combustion truck to a zero emission truck and lose money doing it. In California, largely speaking, you know, especially when you start getting diesel into five and $6 a gallon, you're talking four, five, six thousand $6,000 a month at just diesel costs for a lot of these drivers. And so if you put a thousand, fifteen $1,500 note, you put a thousand, fifteen hundred $1,500 of maintenance, you put a four or $500 parking spot, you pay $20 a container if you're not driving a, a clean truck, When you pick up from the port that's called the clean truck fee it adds up and luckily as i think a lot of folks know like electric trucks are pretty low on the o m side and so when you take these trucks and you amortize it over a five-year lease it's it's pretty darn attractive
1: how do you get these things charged how long does it take and also what does that what do you have to do in terms of the grid because it feels like if you're talking about a depot with 200 charging bays for example and these mega giant batteries in each of these trucks—that feels like you need enough power for a small city. I'll give you the the,
2: the stat that I've given a lot of folks, which is thirty three thousand trucks at the very minimum. Let's just say those trucks have to charge at sixty kW overnight. Thirty three thousand is the amount of drayage trucks in California today. We're talking about two and a half gigawatts of charging infrastructure that's needed to be built, and so. Yeah, I've said this a lot to the investor-owned utilities. We're good for a couple of years. I mean, we could put we could put five, six, 800 trucks worth of facilities in the ground pretty effectively over the next 24 months. The back half of this decade, there's got to be a lot of work. I mean, the utilities have to upgrade. More importantly, the regulators who regulate and, and allow those utilities have to allow those utilities to proactively upgrade. And... That's going to be a lot. I mean, there's 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 a lot of things that have to happen. The grid has to get smarter. We don't have a particularly intelligent grid in California. Having a smarter grid will allow us to to do some more creative things in terms of dynamically hosting these things. But yeah, the, the grid's got to get better and it's got to get bigger. We're good for a few years, but I you know when I talk about the existential risk to the growth of the business, it is that.
0: As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Millions of people have lost weight
2: with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? Right.
1: I was going to say, because over the next decade, especially as electrification of kind of everything, which is a big theme with a lot of people I have on the pod who are in this world of one way or another, everything's getting electrified, principally transport. When you talk about just the hundreds of thousands or even millions of new passenger cars coming on, then you have these giant dredge trucks that feels like we're quickly approaching kind of a critical moment unless thing, some big things start moving now because back in the day, I used to cover energy. I know how long it takes to build a power plant. It's not an overnight thing. You know, it's many, many years. It
2: feels like that's uh, potentially a very big deal. Yeah. When I was at Nextera, we used to talk about that it took a day to get a permit in Oklahoma, a week to get a permit in Texas, in 10 years to get a permit in California. <laughs> um, and uh, that's going to play out. Like, you know, when you talk about Who wants to see the new big transformer at the local substation? Yeah, it's going to be real. And you know, upstream on the transmission side, the yimbys are going to have to come over to the energy side as well, and not just hang out on housing because we, if we do want to electrify everything, and we do want to move towards this, which is the right thing to do, that's the flip side, right? There's always there's always the unintended consequence, and that that one is we need to invest a lot more money in our infrastructure which is going to get paid for by the ratepayers, and it's going to mean that we got to build a lot of things the distribution system by definition is local
1: would you guys be almost like the tip of the spear in a way because each new truck is the equivalent of whatever 10 or 15 electric cars and if again if we're talking 2035 they all have to be electric that feels like that's a pretty quick ramp up and the the Knock-on effect to the grid will start to look dramatic.
2: Yeah, like we're either the tip of the spear or like the ramming thing that blows out doors when cops <laughs> bust in a house. Like, yeah, when we show up, we're like, "Hey, we need ten megawatts at this facility," and the utilities are, "You need how much?" Um, it's certainly one of the most jarring markets from a grid expansion. The good news is there there are pockets of the grid that are, are sufficiently built out today to to host these things. Those are going to get picked off over the next couple of years. And and what do we do after that? Luckily Edison International, the owner of Southern California Edison has been uh, an investor in us from the start. They think about it really, really hard. I have a lot of admiration for that company. I think they're one of the more progressive utilities. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that at the end of the day, the utilities are really at the mercy of the regulators and the regulators Tend to make it hard yeah. to to you know, it's like proactively upgrade things and pass cost along to people who are already paying double, triple what a lot of other states are paying. So it's it's a hard problem to fix. But as I've mentioned, you know, the Air Resource Board is mandating this. And when you think about those thirty three thousand trucks in our case, you're talking over twenty thousand small businesses, small family of you know, businesses, and these local operators. Like
1: yeah, could you talk about that dynamic because the twenty thousand small businesses so effectively that means that most trucks on the road are one guy or one woman with a truck. Basically that is
2: their business. That is the backbone of our trucking. And it's, it is definitely the backbone of drainage. It is folks, you know, Danny and Matt, we, we team up, we buy a truck or two and we're a carrier um, at that point. And we are looking to move goods and, and that's four out of five of every truck that goes in and out of port. Is that right? Um, is that little tiny fleet? And that's gonna be a really, really hard segment to get to turn over for a host of reasons. I think and also without without the third party depot, but also without the grid. Like th- you're gonna have yeah. these folks who, you know, even if they want to turn over, if we don't have enough grid capacity, aren't gonna be able to. And again, this is not a problem over the next two or even three years, but this is you know later in the in the back half of this decade. I've said this a lot, like. It's easy to make the environmental justice headline here that you get the old dirty trucks out of the ports. It's really hard to back that up with economic justice for the small fleets that operate in our ports. Yeah. That's an easy headline. The environmental one is an easy headline. The economic one is a hard problem to fix. Like it takes a lot of thought. I want to get
1: a little bit more into your background, but it strikes me that you are, and perhaps, you know, when you talk about where I have a kind of a drayage charging startup people might be like oh cool but you're actually right in the middle of like where the rubber meets the road where for a bunch of like where the kind of as you say the climate imperative economic justice infrastructure requirements all of that is kind of converging and you're like right in the middle of it
2: all of it I mean, I think we we started the company at a good time. I don't think we anticipated being in the middle of this, right? Like, yeah. AB five, you know, is legislation in California that is gig labor, which is going to dramatically affect truckers. Mm. And how does the evolution of the fleet and electrification and grid upgrades, its supply chain issues in and out of ports, were you know really 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 popular topics and headlines this year? Like, we found ourselves wanting to build heavy duty charging depots. We focused on Dredge and as a byproduct, it's become a really fascinating justice, political, public utilities commission, like, uh, like, you know, issue that we sit in the middle. It's a blast actually. I mean, cause it's just such a, it's such a three-dimensional problem. You know, doing what we do. I mean, it, it, it's hard to go get land and build infrastructure, Yeah, but to think about solving the problems along with this, like solving, environmental, social, like as a business, should we want these these mandates to happen as soon as humanly possible? Like it's the right, th- it, it's good yeah. for business. Yeah, It's bad for our customers. I feel really bad for our customer because one thing I've learned in the last 18 months of building this business is that truckers do not get the good end of the stick. They do not get listened to. It is really hard for their voices to be heard. And in this case, you know, there's a lot of like, yeah. You guys go convert the market will figure it out and these truckers are saying well where's all the infrastructure yeah and there isn't we're one of the first ones doing this and I hope that raising 400 million bucks of, of equity to go build that infrastructure is a good message but we're still eight 12 months away from breaking ground on big Depots and those mandates are right now yeah and so I, I do I do have a lot of sympathy for the trucker
1: yeah it's a real' uh rubik's cube of a business that you've chosen which of course leads to my question why did you choose to do this
2: <laughs> you know i think we've all had those little moments when you know that if you didn't do it you'd regret it yeah yeah whether it's a trip of a lifetime or a date or in this case it was like i came back every year and i was like electrification I, when i was at next Era, where do we want to invest more money? Where do we want to put more resources? I was in charge of distribution system assets. I was like this electrification thing. Boy, this electrification thing is going to be big. It's going to be bigger than solar, ever was. And it just was one of those things. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my early 40s. I've got a couple little kids. I've I've got some chops. I've been successful in the in the businesses I've worked for and helping them grow. When the hell am I ever going to do this? And will I regret not doing this? And so. And I was lucky to find partners that are equally ambitious. Like, you know, I have great partners in the business who also are our game to take a, a big leap and go for it. And, you know, we put a good amount of our own money into the business before we, we raised a dime of venture money. And I'm really happy I did it. I All the doubts that somebody has, like I left a pretty cush corporate job. Yeah. I have never done anything entrepreneurial. And uh, yeah, really wrestled like with the whole decision I was going to say, was there kind of like a,
1: like an effort moment, like where you're like, you know what, there was there like a thing that kind of pushed you over the line or was it just kind of, you just became undeniable over time?
2: You ever read that book, The The Alchemist? Yes. It's one of those books I feel like you get like a, a lot of people get a lot of different things from, but what I took away from that book is that there's these little moments in your life and the world tells you which way to go. Mm-hmm. And if you follow those, you tend to live a pretty good life. I kept having those with this show up. Right. Like somebody would come out of the blue and say, hey, we want to look at electrification depot. Can you help us out? Hmm. We get approached by an infrastructure fund that we're working with for something else. Like it just kept appearing. The universe was was dropping little breadcrumbs. And I was like, I got it. <laughs> okay, I got it. Like, leave me <laughs> alone. <laughs> we'll, we'll start the company. And it was something you know that just had that we had to do. You've got two young kids. Was your wife
1: on board or was... Because like these things are not, it's not just you're starting a business; you're changing
2: your life. Yeah, my wife couldn't have been more on board. I heard this like somebody like explain somebody is like there's like a deep keel in the boat. Like I am better than I used to be, but can go up and down. Um, right, right, I, right. I can run hot and cold, and my partner in life, Kelly, is is the person who just is steady, like steady and a rock, and she. I revere her like in, in in many ways. She believes in me a lot, and yeah, you know, I, I also don't think that we have a lot of expectations of, of our lifestyle or wealth, like personally. And so it was one of those things where her thing was like, "Hey, we're already doing better than our folks were. Like, what's the worst that could happen? Go get a job." Yeah, yeah. And so she's involved every single evening and mobilities mobilities business in some way, shape or form. She's, she's always there, always talking about it. Right. Yes. She wrote the content for our website at first. So did oh, cool. ended that. Where are you from? I was born in Oakland, born in Montclair, just up the road from me right now. My old man, um, who passed years ago it was a, a Berkeley class 69 guy. So I was born in a bathtub in Oakland. Um, <laughs> and, uh, And then we moved to Santa Rosa when I was eight. Um, My dad was a union foreman. My brother's a pipe fitter in the union. Um, I worked heavy equipment. So we are pretty uh, trades oriented family. Yeah. Um, yeah, Just been a Bay Area guy my whole life. Got a job at PowerLight back in 2003, putting solar panels in. Um, Went to college in Hawaii, but came back to the Bay Area. Nice. What did you study? Technically, geography is my degree. Um, I played baseball for the University of Hawaii. So I was focused on athletics, uh, largely. I mean, hence the technically geography. I was like, what does that mean? (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's a degree. I mean, I guess I I figured out some things about azimuth and the world (laughs) that came into handy uh, with solar, but it was a degree that I got, um, while going to the university. I I actually got out of of college there and and hooked up with a construction company in Oahu for a little while. And before coming back to the mainland and uh, getting a job in solar and, the solar thing was great because I, I I always wanted to do construction. It was it was what I knew, what we knew, and I just remember hearing about solar and same thing, kind of like back to the alchemist. Like, wow, like I can build and you can do something that's really good. Yeah, and that seems like a great combo. So I was pretty obsessed with getting any job they would give me at Light. Right, right. So you've just raised a
1: whole boatload of money, and the company is about two years old.
2: About 20 months old at this point. 20 we, months old. 5-1 we five, five of 2021 is when we first made Forum Mobility official.
1: So now that you've raised this money, you're up and running and, you know, got some funding. What's the plan?
2: He said we raised a great Series A. We raised $15 million in Series A. We raised seven and a half at our seed. And that's our corporate money. But we also raised this $400 million joint venture facility in partnership with CPRE and Homecoming Capital as well. It was a hundred million dollar participant in that. And it's a great structure because what what we are doing now is we need to go execute and build, which is the fun part of the job um, versus the fundraising. Yeah. You know, we have facilities at the ports in California, both Northern and Southern California. We have several facilities outside of those ports. And for us, it's getting over 500 trucks worth of chargers in late stage development and in construction over the next year. Um, and start building the business with some scale, putting tens of billions of dollars of capital in the ground every year, and then doing hundreds of millions of dollars of capital every year, shortly thereafter. Tens of billions. Tens of millions oh, okay. and hundreds so, of billions thereafter. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, in California, if you just do the math, I mean, you need over $10 billion of just charging infrastructure for just drainage. You need over $25 billion of just trucks to be bought. You need over... 30 billion dollars of real estate to sit underneath all of that as well. It's immense in terms of the investment opportunity. Yeah, just that's what's
1: crazy. It's like this one little piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And it's massive. Yeah. What makes you think it's going to work? In other words, is there something from what you saw what happened in solar like we were talking about before how you know the prices collapsed and all of a sudden solar is reached parity or even better than like, you know, coal-fired power, et cetera. Is there something that you saw there kind of on that coal face for 20 years that you're like, okay, well, I can see, I can see a similar path here, even though those numbers you just described, given
2: where we are today, feel pretty dramatic.
1: Suntech bought
2: a company. That uh, actually Andrew Beebe, who is one of the, uh, who led our our um, seed round, yeah. obviously participated again. He's on our board, longtime friend. He and I were working for a company called Suntech, which was very briefly a darling of the solar world. And uh, I just remember going to China back in two thousand six and seven, and seeing what was being built, and seeing the polysilicon, the polycrystalline manufacturing mm-hmm. capabilities, and just seeing going to Wuxi China and just being sent, like pointed down the block and see, like, see all those trains? That's more. Right. And beyond that, there's going to be more. And when you look at what's happening with lithium ion batteries, you, you see a really similar thing. And I remember very vividly, like we sold a bunch of panels and they were a dollar 65 watt. And, and then, like, A year later, that exact panel was 65 cents a watt. And it was like, it's just, there was a moment in time when yeah. you just saw this There's all this building, all this building. And that same thing is happening from Korea to Southeast Asia to China uh, on lithium. I think there's a lot of technology into doing it. I hope there's a lot more that goes into doing it more environmentally and socially sensitively. But it's coming. Like the the lithium ion battery appears to me to be going through what the evolution that solar panels did. Yeah. And now you have, I mean, I remember the very first panels that we bought for the Google project were four and a half dollars a watt. And now you can buy panels for under 40 cents a watt, a fraction of the cost. And when that happens with batteries, it won't even be close anymore. Um, we're not going to be talking about the difference between a diesel and electric truck. Yeah,
1: yeah it'll be clear. But your challenge is, uh, as you mentioned earlier, of this kind of Rubik's Cube element of like dealing with putting steel on the ground in communities, getting more electrons generated probably eventually by nuclear, but obviously solar, maybe even fossil fuels, who knows how this goes. But like, there's still a lot of pieces of that jigsaw that are completely a mystery
2: right now or unresolved. And that's one component about running this business now that is, I think a lot of startups have this thing. I believe wholeheartedly in our team, in our business model, I would love to go build everything. It's it's also in our nature. (laughs) Go get as much as we can and build it. We've gotta make sure that we are, we're building something where there's a market. We're gonna to have to build out ahead of the market a little bit by the nature of this being new, but we need to do that in a way that is financially responsible as a company. So that's gonna be my daily, weekly battle for a while, is how hard to accelerate and when to do that yeah. is, is gonna be a lot of, like you said, it, There's a there's policy, there's supply chain, There's incentive structure. There are so many things that go into, when do we go from warp speed to Plaid like in terms of the velocity of the business?
1: Over these past 20 months, was there ever a moment where you're like, "Mm, this is a bad idea or this is not going to work or maybe I'm going to go back and just get a
2: job? No, it's going to work. The model is sound. As a first-time CEO, there's definitely been moments where You look in the mirror and say, am I the right one for this? Am I doing this right? (laughs) And is that around people management? I'll be super personal about this. Like we went through a fundraise. We got term sheets. Some of them didn't work out. Obviously the one with CBRE worked out excessively well. You have good weeks and you have bad weeks. When you combine that with a small growing family and the pressures of life, like sometimes you just have to go for a little bit of a walk and shake yourself. Um, I think the one thing that I had was like, this is a good business model. Like what we are doing will unequivocally be successful. We will be good at it. I think a lot of it came down to me becoming this um, as a CEO and just having to get through some of those, those things. Like I'm really good at some things and I'm not really good at others. And I think as anybody who's I think one of the hard things about becoming a CEO is that for a long time, I was a really good project manager and I was a really good senior project manager. I was a really good head of construction. And then I became a really good developer. And all of a sudden, I don't know about California labor laws, raising money, dealing with every last component of setting up a payroll. Usually you become the boss because you're really good at the job that you're managing. Yeah, yeah. That changes, right? At a lot of levels, not just the CEO level, but... I think for me, it was coming to grips with it, which I have. I I I think that we've gotten the business and and there's a lot of things there. But I think that just starting a company, taking people on, making the promise that they're going to be employed here for a long time, raising the money, raising a family, it can sit heavy on your chest from time to time.
1: Yeah, especially with the little kids. And that has a whole new wrinkle to, uh, it's more than a wrinkle, especially when you're talking about very small kids and lack of sleep and just early parenting it's a lot <laughs> it's a lot
2: one of the great things you get to do as a project developer it's like a little little fun fact is that every project is its own llc hmm. and so you get to name it and so we always tried to come up with like clever names that like there was a project it was in new mexico we called it buena vista next era because everybody thought it was like, but it was just because we really got hammered at the buena vista one night in san francisco <laughs> and we decided to name the project so it's a fun thing that you get to do when your developers name your projects and so I named our Oakland project is FM Adeline, um, which is named after my daughter. Oh, cool. Uh, These are the types of projects you want named after your kids. Oh,
1: one thing before I let you go, what I forgot to ask. California is doing this and often where California leads, the world follows in terms, especially around regulations and environment stuff. What is happening in the UK and Europe? Or do you know, are they on the similar path? Are they
2: not even thinking about this yet? Or do you have any sense of that? In the UK and Europe, I mean, we have not heard a lot. And we've actually talked to a lot of the OEMs and their comments are, this is really something that's happening here in the U.S. Washington state is is working on a lot of exciting stuff. So is Oregon. So is New Jersey and New York. But we have not heard a lot of Netherlands, Germany, some of the ports there, which is interesting. Yeah. And I've also heard from what it's worth, like the whole driver makeup dynamic of those places is also very similar. A lot of independent operators, a lot of immigrants, driving those trucks that scratch together enough to buy a truck and start a business. And a lot of these like, you know, same issues to solve doing this conversion equitably are going to play out there when it plays out.
1: And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Matt for taking the time to chat. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors. You can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can email me Danny.Fortson at Sunday times.co.uk with any suggestions, complaints, concerns, guests, suggestions, whatever it may be. And that is it for me this week. I'll be writing about probably AI because I've been writing a lot about that. And stay tuned. We have a few AI guests coming up. It's been a little hard to pin people down because these are crazy times in the whole AI world, but we do have some very interesting folks coming on the docket. So keep your eye out for that. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye bye.
0: The train is now approaching. Junction and platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop. Road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.